This evening's reading is Revelation chapter 17, which can be found on page 1931 of the Church Bibles. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with the bondable things and the filth of her adulteries. A title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, source of the of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creatures of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are seven, also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. The ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom but two for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. I think we ought to pray. Father, this calls for a mind with wisdom. <laughs> 
And we pray that you would be at work here this evening by your spirit. Pray that these, these words uh, are spoken. People will hear your words. The things you need them are meant. The things that will comfort and encourage them and bless us all. Amen. Right, here's a pencil. Uh, you'll notice I don't often wear a watch. Um, but it's still daylight. <laughs> when it gets dark, <laughs> we're okay. If it's daylight again, we're not okay. <laughs> okay. This, um, right, this is, quite, this is a really important chapter. Um, it's part of the wider pattern, and if we're going to start learning a little bit about how to understand the Bible and how to read it, then we, um, we need to know that it's part of a broader chunk. If you imagine the sort of the letters were a chunk, and then the tribulation was a chunk, here we come to the sort of the culmination, the rise and defeat of evil, and it's got a particular pattern, which those of you who've read theology books will under, remind this word as a chiastic, uh, which means that there are themes that appear at the beginning that are then reflected on and reappear again at the end. And the point is to emphasize um, a particular theme to open up the final goal. So if I gave you uh, an outline of this chiasmus, there you go, you thought you weren't going to learn anything, uh, but we've got A, chapter 15, which is the vision of the saints, then B is the seven plagues, we hear the tribulations unveiled and then the earthquake and destruction we're at point d which is the culmination of this thread towards the end of book of revelation it's the vision of the woman and the beast and then we see this descent uh, almost reverse you know a rep repetition of destruction of babylon uh, and then the earthquake and destruction sorry the plagues against the followers culminates in the last battle and then we see the people of God not just the singing the song of Moses on the on the sea but now in the new and as the new Jerusalem so you can see how different themes are kind of reflected and it's through this chapter 17 that things start to take shape um, so it's hopefully that's helpful just to give us some orienting data uh, but I promised myself when I wrote this I'd give you some helpful stuff and some bonkers stuff uh, just for fun and, and some odd theories and things. It's also important just to see that pattern, just to look at that pattern. We see that Babylon and then later Jerusalem are both presented as what's called city women. That doesn't mean they're ladies of the night, uh, but it means that they, are, they, they represent things that are good. The Jerusalem is presented as a bride and Babylon as a prostitute. So those are, interest, those are themes to sort of keep in mind. And it's important because Babylon, what is Babylon, I think it is quite deep into our lives and into our psyches, I think. I think it reaches deeply into who we are or who we sometimes come to be. So this chapter uh, is, uh, describes, if you like, how Babylon, the prostitute, works. So there's a little bit about the nature of evil here. Uh, the angel we see in we come in verse 1 and 2 starts to explain how this great prostitute works and how the judgment will fall upon her and it reveals something of the nature of evil we read that she's arrayed in purple and red and adorned with precious stones so a scene is set of incredible luxury but also moral corruption because she's intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Kings of the earth 
Uh, she's got this uh, cup uh, in verse uh, 4, cup filled with abominable, I can't say it, abominable things, there you go, and the filth of her adulteries. So this isn't a glamorous picture, this is a picture of uh, seduction, this is a picture of uh, idolatry and faithlessness, spiritual unfaithlessness, as well as moral corruption. And we came across that way back in January when we started looking at Thyatira. Do you remember all that time ago? On their top, we were in the lounge, and we looked about how the dwellers of the earth were drunk on, uh, on their toxic mix of food sacrificed to idols. And again, that theme of spiritual unfaithfulness is being brought together. So the people of the time were sort of having to contend with and lived in a society that said, if you want to do this, if you want to succeed in life, then you come to our temple for our business party and everything will be well with you. So remember we talked about that. That was quite, I remember that being quite a long-winded talk, so I do apologise if you can't remember it. Uh, and it's a mix, if you like. The, the dwellers of the earth have become drunk, verse 2, intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And for the powerful people in society, um, enormous amounts of money, sex, and power were available to those who were willing, frankly, for those who wanted to. They could proceed, they could advance through those three sort of conduits of, of um, power, way and evil, that were um, just available. That was the mechanism, that was the way the world worked then, and it's surprise, surprise, not very different now. Um, we touch on Rome uh, because that's part of this picture here. So it, it, of course, was the most important empire of the time and it was very well able to offer power to sort of vassal kings. We've heard that in the debate last year quite a lot. Uh, and we've heard the idea that it would create servant states. So those ideas are bubbling under. When you think later on about the ten kings who rule about it for an hour, well, that's the sort of thing that Rome could do. We'll give you a bit of power and you'll be okay. Herod, the great, who was king when Jesus was born, was one such person to whom Rome gave power. Give you the title king. You're not really a king. And the, king, and the title didn't pass to his sons. It was just something Rome decided to give. This is not a dig at the Queen's honour list. <laughs> but you see the sorts of things that power attracts and draws people in. And the title and the ability to have more influence and have more things come your way, more opportunities, more of the things, more of life's pleasures. Well, that's the mechanism of the world, isn't it? The reach, uh, if we go to the end of the chapter, for those who've got their Bibles um, open in front of you, which should be uh, all of us, I think, because it's really complicated. Um, but the reach of these, of her, her work, crosses many waters. The waters you saw in verse 15, which is affect our people, multitudes, nations, all sorts of people, languages are affected by this prostitute's work. Its reach is immeasurable. Waters spread everywhere. It's a pretty uh, alarming picture, isn't it, really? And culture, if we're honest, around us can create quite unhealthy fear. If you were reading this in the sort of first century, end of the first century, when it was probably written, 
you'd be familiar with these themes perhaps more than we are now because we're kind of used to it in our culture, but here was a group of people who were, were, were running against culture, who were choosing not to do the Roman thing, who were choosing to live life as Christ had taught them, what they had inherited from the apostles, what they'd inherited from the disciples, what they'd been taught in the churches, what they'd read in Paul's letters. Those were the things shaping them in a culture that, quite frankly, wanted to snuff them out. And our concerns today are different, I think. Our concerns today are probably, as a, as a nation, as a people group, about jobs, about well-being, about uh, being able to get by, but not so much about moral righteousness or uprightness. Things. We're not so sure what a good person is anymore. They're not really cultural things. And it's perhaps, actually, being a good person is only something that a good uh, the celebrities of our culture can, uh, can afford. They've made it to the point where they can start to moralize and teach and say things into society that we think are important. So there's an interesting little parallel with our culture that those people who've really done well still have quite a lot of influence, and we'll come to that later. And the reality with evil and the temptations of the things of money, sex, and power are that they appeal to our sense of personhood in the same way that the serpent appealed to Adam and Eve. You can have this. It was knowledge they wanted, wasn't it? Knowledge of good and evil. But they also wanted freedom from God. They wanted freedom from obligation. They wanted to become separate and stand alone and be their own gods. In fact, Genesis 3, God says, they have become like us. Our hearts are to have more than we can really manage and handle. But evil, in its many forms, is very ready to offer us ways to think we can become someone, someone important like that. And so we leave, we, we put to one side our relationship with God, and we choose to compromise that's fairly, oh, crikey, that's quite big. Right, okay, so let's have a look at verse 6, please. Um, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. I'll come to what she says in a minute uh, on her name. And then John writes, when I saw her, I was greatly astonished. It's not just like, wow, in awe, but it's perplexed. There's a sense of being perplexed here. This title, Bab Mystery, Babylon the Great, Mother of Prostitutes, the Abominations of the Earth. John is awestruck and confused by this vision because the scale is of this tremendous horror that the woman is drunk on the blood of the martyrs. And the thing that I suppose he's, he's trying to sort of wrestle with is in odd be sovereign over this. Where is God in all that? Evil so much has its sway that it seems unstoppable. And how is the lamb going to overcome this? And the enormity and the scale of evil are, are things that I think just made, even in, within this vision, because he's in the spirit in the desert, but even in a vision, 
he stops and, it's, and, it, and it, it, it sort of jars. How can this be? It puzzles him. How can God be in control when the world is so like this? And I suppose that's, those are questions that we really uh, we have ourselves. It was a difficult set, wasn't it? Just imagine for a moment that the, what he is understanding is that the Babylon is drunk on the death, on the blood of the martyrs. And that God is still somehow sovereign in that. How do those people fit? How does God's will come in over that? And it's, all, it's awesome, in not necessarily a good way, and confusing, and, and it is. And then the angel describes, in the same way that another angel had to Daniel, chapter 7 and 10, how some of this will play out. He's talking about what's going to happen to this, uh, this, this, this woman. Why are you astonished, verse 7? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and the beast she rides. And he describes these seven heads and ten horns of the beast, which we have first encountered, chapter 13, as part of the unholy trinity that stands against God in the tribulation. The beast, the false prophet, and the, and the antichrist. And so we read here that they have got uh, seven heads. This beast has seven heads and ten horns. And this is, where, this is where we can sort of get some madcap theories, if you want, or we can, uh, we can sort of really try and dig into what John might be trying to get across. Um, here we go. Um, I can't read. Oh, yes, I can. This, uh, bear with me while I try and peer at the um, link. This is the web link, signsofthelastdays.com archives forward slash Europe rides the beast. Official EU symbols tell us what the elite plan do to plan to do to all of humanity. Com. Brilliant. We've got some. We've got some tension here. The beast and the woman on the beast, and and what's going on, and how are they part of our culture, and how is how are they part of John's culture? Because here's a problem, and I think describe the woman on the beast to things that are specific to John's time. And I think we do in some ways because this, this description of seven heads, we'll come to the ten horns in a moment, then we can't then necessarily just jump and say, oh, and it's also this. You see what I'm saying? If we say, if we say, defini if we say definitively that the beast is Rome, then we can't say, as this website does, that it's also the EU. Okay? We can't, we can't have it. I don't think we can have our cake and eat it. So what's John's point? And in Daniel, of course, uh, the angel is very specific. This is this, this is this, this is this culture, this is this empire, and so on and so on. And, and the angel is very specific, where it's not so much the case here with John. He's a, bit more, he's a bit more fluid, using the ideas to make a point, but not being so specific that he's tying it down. And that's where things start to get quite difficult. But there we go. There's a picture of Europa. And uh, Europa is quite an important feature. It's a, it's a statue that features in many European cities, for example, because it's a Greek myth. And so it would have spread amongst, uh, spread amongst those cultures where Greek uh, culture was important. And uh, here we go. That the, uh, sorry, and Roman culture, of course, uh, with their own version. But we know that the seven hills of Rome uh, are, are what's represented here. And the more confusing thing is the beast which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. 
That is a parody, the beast that was, is not, and is about to rise. Parodies both God and Christ, because those are qualities that we ascribe to God and Christ, don't we? Earlier on in Revelation 1 and chapter 4, uh, verse 4, and chapter 4 and chapter 11 and chapter 16, we read that formula. Was, is not, and about to rise. Who, what, who is, uh, who, who was, who is, and who is to come. That's the way we describe our God. And so what Revelation, what John is saying here is that this beast wants to parody and look like it has the same sorts of qualities as God. It presents itself as a good to the world. It presents itself as benevolent, as being uh, sensible. Probably good ideas, things that most of us would vote for. We say, yes, actually, we ought to do that. And so the beast is something that parodies the qualities of God. It mimics and presents itself. And part of that is to kid us, and part of it is to diminish Christ's unique authority and work, and that God's grace and power are somewhat busts in comparison. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's a, there's a bus that was uh, sponsored by the National Secular Society, and on the side of the bus ran the advert, just be good for goodness sake. And he said, That's, nobody would say that was a silly idea. But all it's doing is it's taking a value, what we might call a virtue, and just applying it to just how you live. There's no consequence to it. What if you're not good? What if I can't be good? But they're just saying, they're just parodying the kind of teaching, the kinds of things that churches say. And a few years ago, and I'm not sure if they're still going actually, but there were quite a lot of um, atheistic gatherings where people would sing uplifting songs, people would read inspiring poetry. And there was one in Brighton, it was getting thousands. I mean, it, it made what was going on in St. Peter's Brighton look quite embarrassingly small, actually. These atheistic gatherings that were important poetry, important philosophy, was being presented as... This is good too, and it doesn't have all the guilt stuff that Christians have, ho-ho. So it's quite important that the beast presents itself, and that's what, how we experience it, but in John's time and before, we know that people in history have tried to sort of make claims about divinity in order to advance their careers. Alexander the Great claimed to be a virgin um, from a virgin birth, which was helpful because he wanted to usurp his father, Philip II. Um, and then Julius Caesar said he was a son of Zeus, uh, and of course that made him more important when he made decisions in the Senate. All of those things are important. The, the evil and those who pursue it will parody God. They will mimic God and make it look like what they're doing is holy stuff. That it makes sense, that it's good for everybody, and it comes from a, a, a place of sensibleness. Uh, I want to just look at a bit more of these. Uh, <laughs> here, here we go. Right, so Europa, this is the story, okay? That it's important to John's readers uh, because Hera was seduced by Zeus in the form of a bull. I don't want to go there, um, frankly, but that was an important part of Roman and Greek mythology and, and, and a popular pat pattern. But it stood for the land and the nation in which they lived. And so those values about passion and about success which Hera and Zeus stood for, uh, were important. And then, of course, I've just shown you that there's one in front of the uh, EU building at uh, 
uh, Brussels, and there's another one in front of the building at Strasbourg, just so we can have some crazy plots and just remind ourselves that there's some balancing going on. But what we learn about evil is that money and power are closely that money and power go hand in hand, that people will do anything in order to sort of advance themselves, and those are the two tools, money, oh, sex, and power. And that's important because that's its nature, to seduce and lead you away from what we know might be right. Ten horns, well, they're a bit more difficult, I'm afraid. There's a list of Roman emperors. You don't need to copy them down. You can ask me for a slide if you want. Um, and this is, this is the danger, which is why I said early on, we can't, I can't remember the name of the movie, but it was Richard Harris. It might have been, it wasn't The Wicker Man, but it was something of that order. Uh, and in it, e, the EU is portrayed as having seven hills and ten heads, and that this was quite clearly an, apoc you know, an, an apocalyptic film. Um, but here we go. We can't tie in all of these emperors with these ten kings who appear later, or even with the ones earlier on, the ones with the, uh, the seven kings. It's just too tricky. It doesn't quite match up. Five of these kings, for example, did die violently, which was talked about here. But what follows afterwards doesn't quite make sense. And in fact, Nero committed suicide. So, you know, that was, is that the same? So it's very difficult to sort of instantly match this to the Roman Empire. When you think, partly because it also depends on where you think who was, on, who was ruling when you think Revelation was written. If you think it was written when um, uh, Domitian was, on the, was on, in power, that would be a different, that gives you a different sequence. And the only sort of thing you could take away from this, perhaps, was that there was a myth about Nero that his followers and supporters um, uh, encouraged, encouraged in their community, which was that he would return. So there is this notion, perhaps in John's mind, or perhaps in what the angel's revealing, is that in parodying good, evil will even go so far as to say, I'll be back, in the way that Christ was. Nero's supporters certainly uh, encouraged people to believe that he would return. Again, diminishing the unique work of Jesus Christ. Which is helpful, actually. Uh, because when we look at these lists, and when we look at these names, and we look at these numbers, and we go, oh my goodness, lots of people have made a lot of money being quite... Um, well, they've just made a lot of money writing about this sort of stuff. But I think the reason, the reality is... John wasn't concerned to name the 144,000 earlier on. Okay? It's a, it's a number. It's got symbolic meaning, and its meaning is a full, complete, and enormous number of all the people that God's called. And when he's using these, there's always this, this idea of ten kings. He's talking about this notion that there's always going to be evil to contend with. It will always have representative power on earth. There will always be people who are seduced into this life, in this life, to do things that are evil. To do it for their own ends, to do it to sort of dominate others, to do it out of, I don't know, sometimes a genuine relationship with Satan, who knows? But there will always be representative power of evil on earth. In John's time, Rome and these, and these Caesars and these emperors. In our time, 
different group of people. John's just using those ideas to work with an idea, work with an idea from Daniel that the readers would understand, but applying it to what he's now seen. And that's important. Nevertheless, sorry, I'm not changing channel. Nevertheless, we have to be careful that it is a real thing. It's not something that just happened in John's time, but it's something that influences us now and in a load of, in, in a lots of different areas. And I don't know if you saw this story. It's a couple of weeks ago. Warner Media, Disney, and Netflix have all stated they're no longer going to produce films in the United States um, state of Georgia. People are involved now. That's, that's an enormous industry. It's 92,000 people are involved in the film industry in Georgia. That's a lot of people. That's an enormous amount of people. And Georgia is the second, uh, joint second film location in the world after California and with the UK. So it's a big industry. And Netflix have said, we are going to, uh, we're not going to do that because many of the stars, many of the actors they want to attract have stated they're unhappy uh, with George's values in, in its passing the heartbeat abortion law. Now, we, I'm, not gonna, I'm not here to debate abortion law. Uh, we talked about that last year, actually. But what worries me, and I think what I want you to try to see, is that <laughs> power is still being exerted, that moral choices are being made by a, an organisation along the lines of its values, which are in conflict with God's. I'm, I'm not sure if I agree with, you know, I'm not going to get into the wherefores and what have you, but, you know, the, this, the cast, if you like, of the Avengers movies, all of which, bar one, were filmed in Georgia, have all said, oh, no, that's not, that's not right. We're not going to go to Georgia if you want to film there. So it's important to see how legislature works. It calls you know, the state legislature of Georgia are being compromised. They're being called to say, well, look, you can make this decision which you think is moral, which your people voted for, or you can listen to these people who've got a lot of money and power and influence. That's how evil works. And quite frankly, sometimes we feel trapped. You try and write to Netflix and say, I'm not sure I agree with your way that you're behaving. Your job is to provide media entertainment, not to dictate moral virtues or values. Are they? They're not elected. I didn't vote for them. You know, I don't think they stood as a party. They didn't have a manifesto. They've just decided these are our values. Our mission statement has all of this stuff in it. And when you start to look at uh, the world around us and look at the companies that we all have got loyalty cards for or are members of, you know, they're all there. So there's this strange reality that in the same way that the early Christians were trapped by the Roman Empire, we're trapped too. We can't change this around us. We're not going to overthrow Netflix and Disney and Warner Media. And that's just the stuff that's our entertainment. What about the things we depend on? What are their values? Part. And that's how the world works. And that's how, that's how these things pass. That's how they get past us. We saw it, didn't we, in the temptation of Jesus. The compromise. Give us this, and we'll give you that. Bend on this, and we'll give you that. 
don't bend on this, we won't give you this. That's the way that evil works in the world. And I think, although this book was written for an oppressed minority, it also speaks to us. But where are we? I do like it when people talk about revival, but I don't know what it will look like. I'm not sure it will look like a nation overcome. I think it will just be, look like people who are more, more steadfast. I don't think it will be a sweeping of a change of a nation per se, but I think it will be people who are prepared to stand up. I think that's what revival is. It's about coming back to life, isn't it? And I think that's what will happen. And I think that's the thing that we're, if we're looking for, then I think we ought to be hoping for that. And the good news that we can look forward to is that in spite of all of this effort to dethrone the land, don't, don't worry, I'm nearly there, um, is that evil itself turns on itself. Evil can't do anything but destroy itself. What, what caught my eye when we were uh, re, when I this week was that the beast, verse 16, the beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. Well, that was the one they called their mother. That was the one they got their power from. That's where they got their influence from. And what will they do? They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Evil can't do anything but destroy itself. Evil can't do anything but destroy itself, which is why the cross is important. Christ's victory on the cross is that it looked like he was destroyed, but actually you can't destroy him. You can't break him. It's like, it's like Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, isn't it? It's the deeper magic, the, the older magic. You can't break that. You can't destroy God. He is, he is love. He is holy. That can't be broken. Those things can't be broken. But evil turns on itself. We see it earlier on in chapter nine. In chapter nine, the demonic locusts torturing their followers, and the demonic horsemen destroying a third of humankind. Evil just can't help but destroy itself. And here we see the the, the unholy false trinity turning on itself, which I think is really, really wonderful. There's a lovely verse in Psalm 54. Um, Let evil. I like this one. I read it in April, and it's still in my mind. Let evil recoil on those who slander me. Lord, in your faithfulness, destroy But he's going to do it by letting evil destroy itself, which is really helpful. I think it's really important, because if we feel trapped, if we feel there's nothing that we can do, if we feel that that far-off country isn't going to be appearing in our lifetime, we've still got hope, haven't we? We don't need to go down with evil. This passage and these, this section in Revelation is about choosing between Babylon and Jerusalem. Which city woman do I want to follow? Who do I want to live? Where do I want to live? Who's, which city's values am I going to live with? Which city's values do I want to fit in with? Where do I want to be a citizen? Because we might not be able to change what's going on around us, but we can change how we deal with what's going on around us. We face these battles, but we don't have to choose evil. We don't have to do things that are destructive. We don't have to. We do. But we don't have to. Part of this passage is that we have the choice. We face battles, but we have a choice. How much do we care about who we represent? How much do we care about how people see us? How much do we care about ourselves when the door is closed and there's no one there. That's the rub of it, isn't it? I remember Ian Coffey say, would your dog sign it? 
put you on the spot, isn't it? But here's the thing. We get to choose how we live. And although the outcome looks horrible, sorry, although what we're going through looks horrible, the outcome is to be with God. The outcome is to be with him in the eternal city that is Jerusalem. Not the infernal one that is Babylon. But it takes us to recognize when, we, when evil is tugging at our heartstrings, pulling at our feelings, undermining our thoughts, kidding us that we'll get away with it, kidding us that it doesn't matter, teaching us to try and compromise. But we have a God who's called us to be with him. And we can choose, therefore, to live his way. It's hard work. It's not easy. It doesn't always look like it's heading anywhere. It didn't look like that for the people reading this. But we take hold of the far off, far, where is it? The far flung country, the far away country to which we're all heading. We choose to recognize evil for what it is and say, that's not who I am. I'm not one of those people. Let's pray. Father, you know the battles we face in our journey towards you. You've called us to walk before you and be holy. And we pray that we would have our eyes focused on you. Father, we want to recognize evil for what it is and repent of it when it has touched our lives, when it's become a habit. Lord, we're sorry when we've allowed it to just be part of our routine. Being careless with your grace, cheapening your love for us. Father, we pray for courage to stand up and be counted. We thank you for the martyrs who've shown us the way. And pray that in our culture, in our society, in our community, your values will be the ones we celebrate. Amen.